Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Dialogue, Protagoras, Part 3 Now I, Protagoras, having these examples before me, am inclined to think that virtue cannot be taught. But then again, when I listen to your words, I waver, and am disposed to think that there must be something in what you say, because I know that you have great experience, and learning, and invention. And I wish that you would, if possible, show me a little more clearly that virtue can be taught. Will you be so good? That I will, Socrates, and gladly. But what would you like? Shall I, as an elder, speak to you as younger men in an apologue or myth, or shall I argue out the question? To this several of the company answered that he should choose for himself. Well then, he said, I think that the myth will be more interesting. Once upon a time there were gods only, and no mortal creatures. But when the time came that these also should be created, the gods fashioned them out of earth and fire, and various mixtures of both elements in the interior of the earth. And when they were about to bring them into the light of day, they ordered Prometheus and Epimetheus to equip them, and to distribute to them severally their proper qualities. Epimetheus said to Prometheus, Let me distribute, and do you inspect. This was agreed, and Epimetheus made the distribution. There were some to whom he gave strength without swiftness, while he equipped the weaker with swiftness. Some he armed, and others he left unarmed, and devised for the latter some other means of preservation, making some large and having their size as a protection, and others small, whose nature was to fly in the air or burrow in the ground. This was to be their way of escape. Thus did he compensate with them the view of preventing any race from becoming extinct. And when he had provided against their destruction by one another, he contrived also a means of protecting them against the seasons of heaven, clothing them with close hair and thick skins, sufficient to defend them against the winter cold and able to resist the summer heat, so that they might have a natural bed of their own when they wanted to rest. Also he furnished them with hoofs and hair and hard and callous skins under their feet. Then he gave them varieties of food, herb of the soil to some, to others fruits of trees, and to others roots, and to some again he gave other animals as food, and some he made to have few young ones, while those who were their prey were very prolific. And in this manner the race was preserved. Thus did Epimetheus, who, not being very wise, forgot that he had distributed among the brute animals all the qualities which he had to give. And when he came to man, who was still unprovided, he was terribly perplexed. Now, while he was in this perplexity, Prometheus came to inspect the distribution, and he found that the other animals were suitably furnished, but that man alone was naked and shoeless, and had neither bed nor arms of defense. The appointed hour was approaching when man in his turn was to go forth into the light of day. And Prometheus, not knowing how he could devise his salvation, stole the mechanical arts of Hephaestus and Athena, and fire with them, 
they could neither have been acquired nor used without fire, and gave them to man. Thus man had the wisdom necessary to the support of life, but political wisdom he had not, for that was in the keeping of Zeus, and the power of Prometheus did not extend to entering into the citadel of heaven, where Zeus dwelt, who moreover had terrible sentinels. But he did enter by stealth into the common workshop of Athena and Hephaestus, in which they used to practice their favorite arts, and carried off Hephaestus' art of working by fire, and also the art of Athena, and gave them to man. And in this way, man was supplied with the means of life. But Prometheus is said to have been afterwards prosecuted for theft, owing to the blunder of Epimetheus. Now man, having a share of the divine attributes, was at first the only one of the animals who had any gods, because he alone was of their kindred, and he would raise altars and images of them. He was not long in inventing articulate speech and names, and he also constructed houses and clothes and shoes and beds and drew sustenance from the earth. Thus provided, mankind at first lived dispersed, and there were no cities. But the consequence was that they were destroyed by the wild beasts, for they were utterly weak in comparison of them, and their art was only sufficient to provide them with the means of life, and did not enable them to carry on war against the animals. Food they had, but not as yet the art of government, of which the art of war is a part. After a while the desire of self-preservation gathered them into cities, but when they were gathered together, Having no art of government, they evil entreated one another, and were again in process of dispersion and destruction. Zeus feared that the entire race would be exterminated, and so he sent Hermes to them, bearing reverence and justice to be the ordering principles of cities and the bonds of friendship and conciliation. Hermes asked Zeus how he should impart justice and reverence among men. Should he distribute them as the arts are distributed? That is to say, to a favored few only? One skilled individual having enough of medicine, or of any other art for many unskilled ones? Shall this be the manner in which I am to distribute justice and reverence among men? Or shall I give them to all? To all, said Zeus. I should like them all to have a share, for cities cannot exist if a few only share in the virtues, as in the arts. And further, make a law by my order, that he who has no part in reverence and justice shall be put to death, for he is a plague of the state. And this is the reason, Socrates, why the Athenians and mankind in general, when the question relates to carpentering or any other mechanical art, allow but a few to share in their deliberations. And when anyone else interferes, then, as you say, they object, if he be not of the favored few, which, as I reply, is very natural. But when they meet to deliberate about political virtue, which proceeds only by way of justice and wisdom, they are patient enough of any man who speaks of them, as is also natural, because they think that every man ought to share in this sort of virtue and that states could not exist if this were otherwise. I have explained to you, Socrates, the reason of this phenomenon.
and that you may not suppose yourself to be deceived in thinking that all men regard every man as having a share of justice or honesty, and of every other political virtue, let me give you a further proof, which is this. In other cases, as you are aware, if a man says that he is a good flute player, or skillful in any other art in which he has no skill, people either laugh at him or are angry with him, and his relations think that he is mad and go and admonish him. But when honesty is in question, or some other political virtue, even if they know that he is dishonest, yet if the man comes publicly forward and tells the truth about his dishonesty, then what in the other case was held by them to be good sense, they now deem to be madness. They say that all men ought to profess honesty whether they are honest or not, and that a man is out of his mind who says anything else. Their notion is that a man must have some degree of honesty, and that if he has none at all, he ought not to be in the world. I have been showing that they are right in admitting every man as a counselor about this sort of virtue, as they are of opinion that every man is a partaker of it. And I will now endeavor to show further that they do not conceive this virtue to be given by nature, or to grow spontaneously but to be a thing which may be taught, and which comes to a man by taking pains. No one would instruct, no one would rebuke, or be angry with those whose calamities they suppose to be due to nature or chance. They do not try to punish or to prevent them from being what they are. They do but pity them. Who is so foolish as to chastise or instruct the ugly, or the diminutive, or the feeble? and for this reason, because he knows that good and evil of this kind is the work of nature and of chance. Whereas, if a man is wanting in those good qualities which are attained by study and exercise and teaching, and has only the contrary evil qualities, other men are angry with him, and punish and reprove him. Of these evil qualities, one is impiety, another injustice, and they may be described generally as the very opposite of political virtue. In such cases, any man will be angry with another, and reprimand him, clearly because he thinks that by study and learning the virtue in which the other is deficient may be acquired. If you will think, Socrates, of the nature of punishment, you will see at once that, in the opinion of mankind, virtue may be acquired. No one punishes the evildoer under the notion, or for the reason, that he has done wrong. Only the unreasonable fury of a beast acts in that manner. But he who desires to inflict rational punishment does not retaliate for a past wrong which cannot be undone. He has regard to the future, and is desirous that the man who is punished, and he who sees him punished, may be deterred from doing wrong again. He punishes for the sake of prevention thereby clearly implying that virtue is capable of being taught. This is the notion of all who retaliate upon others, either privately or publicly. And the Athenians too, your own citizens, like other men, punish and take vengeance on all whom they regard as evildoers. And hence, we may infer them to be of the number of those who think that virtue may be acquired and taught. Thus far, Socrates, I have shown you clearly enough, if I am not mistaken, that your countrymen are right 
in admitting the tinker and the cobbler to advise about politics, and also that they deem virtue to be capable of being taught and acquired. There yet remains one difficulty which has been raised by you about the sons of good men. What is the reason why good men teach their sons the knowledge which is gained from teachers, and make them wise in that, but do nothing towards improving them in the virtues which distinguish themselves? And here, Socrates, I will leave the apologue and resume the argument. Please to consider. Is there, or is there not, some one quality of which all the citizens must be partakers, if there is to be a city at all? In the answer to this question is contained the only solution of your difficulty. There is no other. For if there be any such quality, and this quality or unity is not the art of the carpenter, or the smith, or the potter, but justice, and temperance, and holiness, and, in a word, manly virtue. If this is the quality of which all men must be partakers, and which is the very condition of their learning or doing anything else, and if he who is wanting in this, whether he be a child only or a grown-up man or woman, must be taught and punished, until by punishment he becomes better, and he who rebels against instruction and punishment is either exiled or condemned to death under the idea that he is incurable. If what I am saying be true, good men have their sons taught other things and not this, do consider how extraordinary their conduct would appear to be. For we have shown that they think virtue capable of being taught and cultivated both in private and public, and, notwithstanding, they have their sons taught lesser matters, ignorance of which does not involve the punishment of death but greater things, of which the ignorance may cause death and exile to those who have no training or knowledge of them, I and confiscation as well as death, and in a word, may be the ruin of families. Those things, I say, they are supposed not to teach them, not to take the utmost care that they should learn. How improbable is this, Socrates? Education and admonition commence in the first years of childhood, and last to the very end of life. Mother and nurse and father and tutor are vying with one another about the improvement of the child as soon as ever he is able to understand what is being said to him. He cannot say or do anything without their setting forth to him that this is just and that is unjust. This is honorable. That is dishonorable. This is holy. That is unholy. Do this and abstain from that. And if he obeys, well and good. If not, he is straightened by threats and blows, like a piece of bent or warped wood. At a later stage, they send him to teachers and enjoin them to see to his manners even more than to his reading and music. And the teachers do as they are desired. And when the boy has learned his letters, and is beginning to understand what is written, as before he understood only what was spoken, they put into his hands the works of great poets, which he reads sitting on a bench at school. In these are contained many admonitions, and many tales, and praises, and encomia of ancient famous men, which he is required to learn by heart, 
in order that he may imitate or emulate them and desire to become like them. Then, again, the teachers of the lyre take similar care that their young disciple is temperate and gets into no mischief. And when they have taught him the use of the lyre, they introduce him to the poems of other excellent poets, who are the lyric poets. And these they set to music, and make their harmonies and rhythms quite familiar to the children's souls, in order that they may learn to be more gentle, and harmonious, and rhythmical, and so more fitted for speech and action. For the life of man in every part has need of harmony and rhythm. Then they send them to the master of gymnastic, in order that their bodies may better minister to the virtuous mind, and that they may not be compelled through bodily weakness to play the coward in war or on any other occasion. This is what is done by those who have the means, and those who have the means are the rich. Their children begin to go to school soonest and leave off latest. When they have done with masters, the state again compels them to learn the laws and live after the pattern which they furnish, and not after their own fancies. And just as in learning to write, the writing master first draws lines with a style for the use of the young beginner, and gives him the tablet, and makes him follow the lines. So the city draws the laws, which were the invention of good lawgivers living in the olden time. These are given to the young man in order to guide him in his conduct, whether he is commanding or obeying, and he who transgresses them is to be corrected, or, in other words, called to account, which is a term used not only in your country, but also in many others, seeing that justice calls men to account. Now when there is all this care about virtue, private and public, why, Socrates, do you still wonder and doubt whether virtue can be taught? Cease to wonder for the opposite would be far more surprising. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn turn will be our delight till by turning turning we come round right <laughs>